0: You're listening to WERALP 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Today's episode is part two of a special series on independent publishers and authors. The rise of small presses is filling a void left by traditional New York City-based publishers who are so buried in the metadata of book marketing that authors... Even famous best-selling authors have almost zero say in the final product. I'll give you an example. While working on today's episode, the Wall Street Journal published an article titled, I Can't Believe It's 368 Pages About Butter. This is in reference to a pile of books published over the past few years on hyper-specific single topics like butter, salt, cod. You might recognize a couple of those titles, The author Mark Kurlansky famously chronicled the history of salt and cod in his best-selling books. But that article goes on to say that when Kurlansky completed a book about another fish, salmon, his preferred title, Salmon and the Earth, was rejected by the publisher out of fears that readers wouldn't relate that new book to him. This is an example of the traditional publishing industry creating Lane's so narrow that most writers are excluded. The good news is that many of today's best new releases are published by independent and hybrid presses. My guests today authored books published by Jaded Ibis Press and Mascot Books with compelling narratives that serve a higher purpose. The first is debut novelist Sion Dason, who has written a novel about the racial fault lines in the American South. And the second author, Paula Laser, just published her first work of nonfiction, a personal study of how schools are failing students who learn differently. These discussions are coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media. Thank you for joining me. Here we go. The novel As a River. By author Sion Daisen, is a multi generational story that shifts over periods of time in a small Georgia town. It's been called an extraordinary debut by an author with an eye for the fault lines of Southern history. This is a story that has been called Quiet, Lush, holding dark secrets about a man who returns home to care for his dying mother. Sion Daisen was raised in North Carolina before spending a decade in Paris and now lives in Valencia, Spain. As a River is published by Jaded Ibis Press. This discussion is part of the Real Fiction series on independent presses and authors. Joining me from Valencia, Spain is Sion Dason. Sion, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, Lori, it's so great to be here. Thanks for that lovely introduction. I have
0: been watching your novel, As a River, for a while, and it continues to generate interest small press picks called your novel Masterful Writing, and I read separately that this was about a dozen years in the making. Can you tell us where the story idea came from?
1: Sure. Yeah, I can actually pinpoint the exact moment this story started for me. I was living in New York at the time, and I was walking through Harlem one day, and I overheard some teenage girls chatting, and one said, she's pregnant and never even had sex. And you can imagine that line really caught my attention. And I was just a couple of blocks from home, so I rushed home and wrote a scene. And that line of dialogue I heard sort of transformed itself into the character of Essie, a young girl in Georgia who weaves a story of a miraculous conception to make sense of something more troubling. And then I got interested in her daughter, Celie, too. I asked myself, what would it be like to grow up with the mother who raises you with this tale? And the more I started writing about the small town and these characters, even more characters started um, coming into the picture. And not long after, a stranger came to town, this handsome man in his 30s with something haunting him from his past. And as soon as Greer entered the picture, I felt so much energy and just sort of knew that he would be my main protagonist. So the central question became why Greer had fled his hometown But um, that initial seed was very crucial because As a River is very much about our origins and how the stories we tell about ourselves shape our lives.
0: The conversation was overheard in Harlem, but how did how did you know you wanted to set the novel in the
1: American South? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in North Carolina, um, and there is an amazing literary tradition of Southern writing, of course. And, you know, fiction is very much about the subconscious as well. I don't make a lot of conscious choices in the early drafting of a work. So I have no idea why just 10 minutes after hearing that line, I was suddenly in the South and not just in the South, but I was also, I think, I already knew I was in the past. I think when I first started writing it, I already felt like I was in the 1970s, um, you know, in an era before I was born. I was born in the late 70s. So yeah, I don't don't have a good answer as to why I immediately knew, but that was something that I felt from the, the very first line that I wrote.
0: Did you write the first draft while you were living in New York?
1: No, I wrote the majority of it in Paris. That, it, it began in New York in 2005, but I moved to Paris at the end of 2006. And so I was still very much working on it in Paris.
0: I love the idea that you you heard the novel in the US, started writing it, or wrote the bulk of it in Europe. It makes me think of a scene that is in the middle, probably about halfway through the novel, um, is a lovely scene where the characters Greer and Carolyn have a game, and they they name places that they'd like to escape to, and I think they name Hong Kong and Casablanca. When you were young, did you did you always have wanderlust?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was curious from a very early age. It wasn't so much about leaving the South. It was just seeing what else was out there in the world. You know, my parents were huge travelers. You know, I'm named after a town in Switzerland because my mother was pregnant with me when they were staying in this town called Sion. And I also grew up with this beautiful picture of my mom on the island of Crete, where she lived for four months just because she wanted to. And she was with my oldest uh, sister when she was about four
0: so your expat life was really shaped by your your parents living and traveling in europe
1: yeah i mean they definitely lived in the united states they were never expats but you know my mother especially was the the biggest traveler and whenever she could cobble together some extra money and some time off work all she wanted to do was travel.
0: When you were living in Paris and working on this novel, did you have a writing group uh, that you shared your early drafts with?
1: I didn't have a writing group in the beginning, but I actually started my MFA at Vermont College of Fine Arts in 2000 at the end of 2007. Um, and that's a low residency. MFA program. So I could live in Paris, do my work in Paris, and then just go back to Vermont a couple of times a year for residencies. So I got amazing support from my writing mentors there and, and group there. And then later on, I did find um, a group in Paris and they are mentioned in my very long acknowledgments. I have some, some, some writers from that group who I couldn't have finished the draft without them.
0: Okay. So you were with an MFA program in Vermont, and that's a very prestigious MFA program where there's a lot of good connections. I'd love to know, at what point did you realize as a river was potentially going to take a non-traditional publishing path?
1: Yeah, no, I I definitely started by approaching literary agents and trying for a traditional path. Um, You know, and at the start, it, it had some promising signs. You know, I the manuscript placed in some novel competitions. When I queried, I got lots of requests for full manuscripts. um, And I did get some really nice feedback. You know, these were more than just form rejections, um, although I did get some of those too, obviously. But, you know, a lot of responses were that this is really beautiful, but it's too quiet. And I heard that over and over, beautiful, but quiet. And um, so I think I realized after a couple of years of that, that maybe this is more of a small press book. So that's when I started sending it out to small presses.
0: This is something that I really don't understand. And, and I <laughs> wanted to to include some authors who have books out into the world, and and some of them are called quiet. You're including As a River, and it's garnered wonderful praise. People love this novel. But what does that mean in the traditional publishing world when a, when a novel is quiet?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard that so much that you'd think I'd have better insight into it. I mean, I would love to hear from agents what quiet means to them. The way I interpret it is that they're thinking that there's not a huge hook to hang your hat on. You know, I mean, this isn't a high concept book, you know, it's it's one of the oldest storylines known to man, either a stranger comes to town or a man goes on a journey. And in some ways, Greer can be seen as embodying both of those things. So, you know, it's not necessarily something that's going to kick off a new genre or reinvent what the modern novel can do. But, you know, I don't think that level of innovation is what's necessary or required for art to be compelling. I think Quiet means there's as much attention to the language as there is to plot. Um, I think it's about being as concerned with the internal lives of its characters even more than year events externally. But I, you know, I care about those things. I want to read beautiful sentences. I want to delve into the psyche of people dealing with everyday things. And, you know, you find the extraordinary in in really delving into the ordinary parts of life and paying close, tender attention to that. Yeah. To me, that's, that's what fiction is. It's what it means to be human. And I think a lot of quiet novels, that's very much the project. I don't know. What do you think quiet means?
0: It's funny you should ask, in the course of doing some discussions this week with independent authors, one author said, you're not swimming in this lane or that lane, you're kind of crossing lanes and we don't know where to place you. And this is a good time to ask about the cover and the physical product, because one of the things I've noticed in the last year is that independent presses have really done a beautiful job of creating a product that looks exactly like a traditional press? Did you want to know that the physical product would feel good and look good in the hands of the reader?
1: Well, I mean, I love books as physical objects. I I, I still haven't even converted to an e-reader. So, you know, I am absolutely thrilled that the book is beautiful and it's so soft too. Like it's actually <laughs> pleasurable to touch. Um, Of course, I I didn't know that before I signed with Jaded Ibis Press. I love that you are generous in thinking I had lots of uh, opportunities to, to weigh, but it was very hard to find a home for this book. As I said, I tried for many years with literary agents before turning to small presses, and I did actually get signed by another small press in early 2015, And right as uh, we started the production queue, that press closed, um, which is a pretty devastating blow. It's hard to, you know, it's a hard road for all small presses, too. Um, But it was it was definitely shocking. It left a lot of um, a lot of authors sort of in the lurch. And then another small press said that they would take on those orphan manuscripts, but they didn't actually have the bandwidth to do that. And so they also couldn't follow through on the commitment. So I actually, there was a little while where I stopped actively pursuing publication. The process had been a little demoralizing and I was feeling like um, I just didn't have agency anymore. And I wanted to do something that I had control over. So that's actually when I moved to Spain. (laughs) I was like, at least I can control that. And it was when I was here, remarkably, my first summer, I got two emails from two separate presses on two consecutive days. And one of them was from a small press who had had my manuscript in a submittable queue for a year. And they had Hmm. just had the time to read it and said, wow, we don't know if this is still available, but we love it. And they, they offered. And the next day, I heard from Jaded Ibis, who had... Heard from another press about my manuscript. So it was completely out of the blue after nothing happening with the manuscript for for years. So I kind of I kind of like it because in a way I had surrendered to maybe this just isn't gonna happen. And as soon as I let go is when these beautiful opportunities came towards me.
0: How did your editor at Jaded Ibis respond to the structure of the novel? Your case is pretty ambitious. I think I counted five different time periods. Did you have the structure in mind before you put pen to paper or did it, did you rearrange things through drafts?
1: Oh yes. No, I am a totally a fly by the seats pants of kind of author, you know, I do not plan in advance. So the structure was very hard one. I had no idea what I was doing in the beginning. Um, I actually thought this was going to be a collection of interlinked short stories. So I think that's actually where the different time periods started. I knew I was going to be in Bannon, Georgia and I had these different characters um, and I had these different snippets from different time periods and I thought they're going to be short stories. But it just after quite a while of trying to work that way, I saw that it it wasn't working. And that's when I opened it up more into a novel structure. But yeah, I mean, I it was hard one, that structure. Let's just say that it it was very organic the way I came to it. I write in a very nonlinear fashion. I sort of write in fragments. Um, And so I had all of these different time periods and. I didn't know how to make sense of it. And it was actually my friend, the novelist Sophie Hardash, who gave me the idea of thinking of the narrative as two washing lines, sort of that 1977 is the present time of the novel when Greer returns. And so, you know, she said, you can sort of always think of that as a grounding, anchoring time for the reader, and so you have 1977 as a through line, but then, you know, every other chapter you can alternate and, and move to the past. And that really helped me, that idea of narrative washing lines.
0: You've been praised for laying out sort of the Southern fault lines of history. When, when you hear a review like that, what does, what does that mean to you? And what do you want the reader to embrace after reading this novel?
1: Oh, man, that is such a big question. You know, I, I grew up sort of steeped in Southern literature, Um, William Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, Carson McCullers, um, Eudora Welty, there's just an amazing wealth of Southern literature there. And also, you know, I think within the South, you can you can see the complicated history of the United States are, you know, the racism that exists. That is one of the grounding features of what it means to be in the United States of America. So, but I think another review said something about how, you know, that is the background to the story and it's integral, but I use it as sort of a psychological pressure on the narrative. It's um. It's a human poignant story about these characters. And it wouldn't exist without that social context. But there are human beings at the center of them. And I I wanted to focus on the personal story.
0: Yes. And this is a good time for me to ask you about something I noticed when I was doing a little research. The fun part about doing these Uh these (laughs) author discussions, I get to poke around websites and something struck me about your website and your email signature. And it says story plus service and i love this what does this mean to you
1: oh well i really appreciate you noticing that um Yeah, that tagline sort of comes from my lifelong inner battle of where to focus my attention. I mean, I started reading very early. My mother's a librarian. I started writing from the time I could hold a pencil. So story has always been a big part of my identity. Um, But I also felt equally as compelled to try to make the world a better place. What does that mean? I mean, there are works of writing and art that have been transformative and made the world better for sure. But, you know, and this is not to undervalue my own work. It's just to be realistic. I didn't necessarily think that my offerings, my writing were were on that level, you know. So I have a real admiration as well for looking squarely at the injustices in our society and saying it's not okay with me. You know, I'm going to do something about it. So activism, advocacy, direct service. So, you know, on the one hand, I had these literary heroes, but I also had you know, these heroes of MLK and Gandhi and, you know, these huge figures of history, you think about dramatically changing things. And of course, I know now all of the people whose names who don't make the history books, but who are doing crucial work on the ground day after day, that is part of the long work of improving lives. Uh, of improving lives. So that tagline for me is, is aspirational, that it speaks to the two things I value the most.
0: I think that's incredible. And as you were describing your, your mother as a librarian, I can picture you as a small child just spending hours and hours in a library. When you were a child, what kind of books did you like to read?
1: Oh, I was actually a very strange child because I skipped over all of the children's books. Like I was reading Stephen King by the time I was in first grade. Oh. <laughs> um. <laughs> wow. My mom was a little nervous. Yeah, I know. Kind of surprising. And I remember also reading Ken Follett books, like these epic historical novels. Um, I don't know. I just sort of read anything my, I could get my hands on. And obviously, with a mom as a librarian, that meant, that meant everything.
0: What is your family's reaction to your novel?
1: Oh, they are so supportive. Yeah, and also because it did take so long to come out into the world. Obviously, this is just a big celebration for all of us. You know, I think some people, maybe their families don't understand um, the call to writing as much as maybe my family does. Obviously, with a mother who's a librarian, she... Uh, she loves books. And they weren't concerned about, well, this isn't a very career path that's going to take you anywhere. It was just like, are you happy doing it? You know, is this what you're called to do? So yeah, I couldn't ask for for a better cheerleading squad.
0: Do you ever think about what would have happened if your novel had been published by a big trade press?
1: I am so grateful that it happened this way. I mean, you know, during those many years, obviously, <laughs> obviously it didn't feel like something more was coming. It, it, it felt very frustrating and difficult. But now that I've been through it, I'm like, well, this was the perfect moment for it to come out. Just even as a person and where I am in my life, I feel like I'm able to enjoy this more. There's less pressure on the book. I'm really just enjoying it. And as you said, it has been a very personal experience. I mean, the cover of my book, that is artwork from a friend of mine, a friend in Paris. And, you know, I had so much input into everything. So I don't at this point actually think about what it would have been like if I was with a bigger press. I'm sure it would have been really different, but I'm really happy with how the path has has unfolded.
0: What is the reaction of readers? I know you've done a few events in New York and, and Europe. Now that the book has been out for a few months, what are you hearing from readers?
1: Oh, I just, I have a lot of lovely like reviews on Goodreads. And you know every once in a while i get an email from someone I don't know. And a lot of people say that they read the book in one sitting. Which means that they're captivated by it, you know? So all of you know, all the people said this book is too quiet. It's like, well, people are also turning the pages though. <laughs> they want to know what
0: happens. Honestly, this is something that baffles me. I mean, your book has all of the elements. It has family secrets, there's there's the unlikely friendship with the teenage character Seely and Greer. These these are all things that readers love. So I I am both baffled by this and intrigued by the rise of independent presses who are putting these stories that clearly readers want more of. And so when I say that, what, what gives you hope about the stories you're seeing from fellow writers and the rise of these independent presses who are, who are just jumping in and, and bravely printing these stories, not knowing if they're going to make much money?
1: Yeah. I mean, I just think that there's such a diversity of people and stories in this world. And I think we really need different kinds of stories. You know, I think the bigger presses are trying to figure out what, you know, what will the big book be? And there's not actually a way to predict what will make a a book a big book. There's nothing you can bank on. Like, a lot of it is down to luck. Talent and hard work definitely counts, but there's also just timing and lucky breaks and connections. So, I think small presses who just see a good story, a story, and care about the quality of the stories more than just the mere commerce side of it, you know, are filling a really important role.
0: Well, I do have one last question that I I want to ask you, and I can't wait to hear what you'll say because you have been living in Europe for a number of years. And I wonder if there's a book that you love to recommend that maybe no one has ever heard of.
1: I don't know if it's a book that no one's ever heard of because it certainly got glowing reviews at the time. But I was surprised that it didn't make more of a splash because I just loved it. It's called Landfalls by Naomi J. Williams. Have you heard of this one?
0: I have not tell me tell me everything
1: <laughs> it 's a fictional retelling of a French sea expedition in the 18th century that set out to circumnavigate the world, but then the ships vanished, so this was a, a true story, but she fictionalized it. Um, and I have to say that, you know, a historical maritime novel is not something that on the face of it, I thought would be my particular cup of tea. And yet I was totally blown away by it. And that's what I love about reading outside of you know, what you think might be your comfort zone. Um, it's sort of like a set of interlinked short stories, each chapters from a different character's point of view and each chapter set in a different country. And she did a really amazing job of inhabiting everyone's unique internal landscape and creating these rich psychological portraits while also seamlessly working in this meticulous research about the time period and these vastly different settings. I mean, in the book, you go from London to Russia to Chile to the Solomon Islands, and it was just a really breathtaking ride. It's really ambitious, but it's also really humane.
0: Yeah, historical maritime novel would not grab me, but your description has convinced me. So it almost sounds more like a... Uh, a a travel uh, uh, exploration. And the name of it is Landfalls. And what is the name of the author again?
1: Naomi J. Williams.
0: That's an excellent suggestion. I, I've never heard of it, but it sounds like something we should all check it's out. It's
1: wonderful. It's wonderful.
0: Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us today, Sion. Um, it's been such an enlightening conversation and we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today.
1: Well, thank you, Laura. I'm such a fan of your show, so it's a real delight to have been here.
0: Thank you. And I will remind everyone that my guest today is Sion Dayson, author of As a River, published by Jaded Ibis Press. And thanks to everyone for listening. We're on Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7, streaming on WERA.fm. And you can find us at realfictionradio.com. You're listening to WERALP 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, streaming on WERA.FM. You can also find us on realfictionradio.com. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I will be joined by author Paula Laser, author of Beyond the Box, How Hands-On Learning Can Transform a Child and Reform Our Schools, A Mother's Story. Welcome back. You're listening to WERALP 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Today's episode is part two of a special series on independent publishers and authors. My guest today is Paula Laser, author of Beyond the Box, How Hands-On Learning Can Transform a Child and Reform Our Schools, A Mother's Story. It is published by Mascot Books. Jay Matthews, the education columnist for the Washington Post, said this this about the book. It is one of the most convincing defenses I have ever read of the century-old work of John Dewey, who argued that children learn better if they are actively involved in projects such as making things by hand. Paula Laser is a parent advocate and the host of Education Innovations, a radio program here at WERA FM, focused on -on hands-on project-based learning. Her book, Beyond the Box, is a mother's story about how the traditional school system is stacked against kids who learn differently. In her previous career, Paula Laser covered domestic policy issues for a legal publication in Washington, D.C. She lives in Arlington, Virginia. This discussion is part of the Real Fiction Independent Publishing Series. Here to discuss her book and its path to publication is Paula Laser. Paula, welcome to the program. Why, thank you very much, Lori. Before we talk about your book, I want to mention again that you are the first Real Fiction guest who is a fellow producer here at WERA. You're the host of Education Innovations. How long has your program been on the air and what inspired it? Well, it'll be having its fourth
2: year anniversary in June. And what inspired it basically was the book. The issues raised in the show
0: are rooted in that book. So authors um, today, especially authors of nonfiction, they have to concern themselves with this term called platform. And what's interesting about what you bring to platform is that you've had a career in journalism, you are a parent advocate, and you have a radio program. So how do you see those threads coming together as you developed the book? Well, the interesting
2: thing, again, also about that book is that it would not have arisen if I had not been a parent advocate. And like any parent advocate, they have a personal story, I think, to be passionate about an issue. In this case, It was the journey that we took with our son to trying to find the right education program. I guess one led into another and led into another. But again, it was the book and the issues in the book and the opportunity to discuss those issues that led to education innovation.
0: We will talk a bit more about education innovations in some of the, the episodes and programming that you have coming up later this month um but first i want to mention that quote that i uh, read in the intro the washington post featured beyond the box in a glowing review and it's significant for a couple of reasons i mean it's it was the praise was extraordinary but it was a praise for an independently published book and we know that independently published books have a difficult time finding coverage in a national newspaper And I had the chance to hear you discuss this book at a public reading recently in Virginia. And I could tell right away that the story of your son's journey had struck a nerve with parents. So tell us, in your words, what is your book Beyond the Box about? Well, the book itself,
2: and I guess the subtitle I was hoping would explain in the old elevator pitch where you try to do it in 25 words or less, just this In our case, the experience of how hands-on learning can transform a child. In this case, it was our son. But also, when you take that approach to learning, I think it could reform our schools. And that is, I think, a controversial issue in there, because we still have a traditional school system for the most part. And my personal view is there's too much overemphasis on testing in most cases, standards of learning in Virginia, you have to pass all those tests to even earn a diploma. And for kids that don't test well, and our son was one of them, he ultimately might not have graduated from high school, even though he's a bright child. That wasn't the way to measure his
0: intelligence. You started writing this book after your son, Matt, graduated from high school. Is long after he graduated from high school. But this is grounded in his experience. I just want to make sure I understand the timeline.
2: The timeline was 1999 to 2004. It was a five-year period where he was showing and starting to show difficulty in middle school. And so that was the, the time period we were talking about.
0: When you think about the book, how do, how do you describe it? Do you describe it as a nonfiction book, um, a memoir, or a, blended in some way. I always like to ask authors about it. where does it fit on the shelf and when you're marketing it what what categories would you ascribe to it? I would think of it as a, a memoir. I mean,
2: it's it's based on 5 years of journals and I also had the opportunity to have all his special ed files from first grade until he finished school. So, I mean, it's my memories and it's based on my journals, so It's a memoir.
0: The fact that it's a memoir, and again, we're going to walk into the process of publishing this book, but if you had pitched this book as a memoir to a traditional press, New York City House, do you think you would have had the flexibility to control the content and protect the, not the characters, but the people involved in the story?
2: Well, that is a good question, and I think the answer would have been a good question, Because I would not have known, first of all, how the publisher would have reacted. And my other concern would be that even if they wanted to go with this memoir, how how would it end up? Would they want to emphasize one aspect over another? And the one thing about and I know we'll talk about this later, is that with a hybrid publisher that I had, which is sort of the middle ground, publisher is not taking the risk, you are. But The exchange, and and I think it's invaluable, at least for me, was I had total
0: author control. Well, this is central to what I was hoping to investigate in this series. Authors who make the decision to go with a small press, and in your case, a hybrid press, and Mascot Books is based in Virginia, and they have this this, um, sort of different business model, really. This allowed you to have editorial control. Right. They didn't interrupt your process or think about the marketing um, in a way that suggested or in a way that rejected the idea of changing your son's name for the memoir. You were able to change the name, protect his identity, and tell the story and get into the core of what you wanted to achieve with the book. Exactly. Ultimately, what did you find is the solution for students who learn differently? What, and what what is your recommended best path forward for a student who just needs a different a different avenue. Well,
2: that's interesting the way you put it. And it actually was the way I thought of it for quite some time. Uh, yes, he had a, a different learning style in that he really did well when he was working with his hands. But as I realized later on that what worked for him, and in this case it ended up being auto technology, but what, what you do in auto technology is you still have the classwork, but then you go out and apply it in the garage, right? And I realized, and this is where the show also comes in, but that, that idea of applying what you learn in the classroom to the real world outside can benefit all students. It really can, and I've seen
0: it over and over again in my show. We should mention that your son, Matt, as a result of this auto-technology training, is now a successful business owner.
2: Yes. In his case, the auto-technology, and up until then, I mean, the stories that happened, the, the social and emotional effect this can have on a child for years when you're not perhaps passing these tests, you're not succeeding um, the way success is defined, to finally find something that he found. I mean, he just basically transformed, not immediately, but I could see the confidence coming back in him. He actually wanted to go to school. It used to be a battle just to get him out of bed. Um, he had that passion and his motivation to do all this. So when he finished the Career Center, he went on to a tech school, thrived there, learned one thing at a time, three-week sessions. Very intense, but. He went on from there, and after several years of working um, at independent shops as well as dealerships, he earned all his certifications to become a master auto technician. And to me, that's the equivalent of a master's degree. I mean, you really have to master each aspect of a car that you're working on. And from there, he went on to become a business owner.
0: That's an extraordinary story, and I'm going to remind listeners that Speaking today with Paula Laser. Her book is Beyond the Box How Hands on Learning Can Transform a Child and Reform Our Schools, a Mother Story. And I emphasize the full subtitle here because what you just described is the impact that this new training had on the entire family. This wasn't just something that improved Matt's life, finding Matt's purpose improved the lives of the entire family. Well,
2: the whole family dynamics is also in this book. And it's not uncommon for, and this was the case for us, we had a, a daughter who just thrived in the traditional way. You know, she ended up getting her in a baccalaureate diploma, and which is very rigorous, I think almost too rigorous. Because in her instance, she couldn't go over to the career center because she had her specific classes that she had to take at a specific time. But... The other main issue that comes in this book and is so often the case, if you have a child who needs additional um, attention, as a parent, you're going to try to provide it. If you have a child, in this case our daughter, who seems to be just moving along swimmingly, guess who gets all the attention? In our case, it was our son who was struggling, and it wasn't until years later that she told us that in many ways she felt invisible because and she didn't resent him, she knew he needed the attention and she felt guilty if she would try to ask me for more attention. So there there really is this difficult dynamic that you have and I've talked to others that are also in that situation
0: trying to find that balance. That's uh that seems a critical factor, the family dynamic. Are there instances In your experience, where families uh, resent the idea that they should go, that their child should go into manual labor or something that, because we're we're talking in Arlington, Virginia, we have, this is one of the most affluent school systems in the country. Do you feel any snobbery or resistance to, from parents who are told that their child would benefit from non-traditional education?
2: Oh, I'm sure it's there, but I came from a blue-collar area, and where I grew up at the time, you could come out of high school and get a very
0: good, well-paying job, or you could get a GED. Can you go back and talk a bit more about the Career Center in Arlington? We've mentioned that um, this has been a great resource for you personally, your family, and it is also the source of a great deal of content in your program here at WERAFM in education innovations. Tell us more about what is offered at the Career Center and if this is a, uh, something that many communities have or is it unique to Arlington?
2: Well, it's not unique to Arlington, and I'm happy to see that more and more schools, school districts are having um, that emphasis on technical education as well as preparing for college In fact, I try to be very careful about when I, even in my opening, as far as multiple ways of learning, that children are learning and seeing a connection between education and college and career. Because you you can go a few different ways. And it's also, it doesn't mean if you pursue Career technical education, whether it's auto technology, culinary arts, it doesn't keep you from moving into another direction as well, down the line. So with career and technical education, I in Arlington, which I think is astounding, actually, because of this issue of, like, too many people feel uh, if you don't go on to a four-year college or a top-tier four-year college, perhaps uh, you won't be as successful in life. But what Arlington Arlington, uh, Career Center did, and this is extraordinary, I think, for for the school district, is four years ago, they established Arlington Tech, which is a very rigorous program. And it's STEM-focused, science, technology, engineering, math. But they have it in the Career Center. And the students that are in this program are required as their electives to take these career technical education classes. Initially, parents... And I was very involved in the Career Center at the time. Most parents balked at this idea of their child going over to what they considered a trade school, having no idea what's actually over there. What's over there are your EMT program. If you're interested in the medical track, why wouldn't you want to get an EMT certification? If you're interested in the medical track, why wouldn't you want to um, take physical
0: therapy classes, It makes all the sense in the world. It's another way of thinking about a really practical internship. Exactly. And that is one of the
2: areas that um, is stressed over there, and they're working as hard as they can to get as many internships, work-based learning opportunities that um, are available in this area. There's more of a cooperation now, too. I think businesses, industry are seeing the big advantage, actually, of having these students Um, involved while they're still in high school.
0: Well, there are rich experiences and a lot of wisdom in this book. Since your book has been published, what's the most gratifying thing that's happened? Or what's the most gratifying thing that someone has said to you as a result of having published this book?
2: Now, I was at a book talk uh, about a month ago. And what I like to do is read excerpts from the book. Um, as examples of the journey, but then I love to take questions. And some of the—actually, um, a lot of the people who ask questions are parents, some of them with children who are struggling, some are educators. But there was one person who mentioned—and this actually was something from a conversation a few years ago that I'd had with her—that because of our conversation— And the approach to learning that I told her about, which is basically this hands-on, multiple intelligence recognition, that she found a a school that um, I had mentioned to her, and her son's been going there and thriving. So when you can see an example, basically proof positive of what hands-on learning, what learning to work with others, what... It's okay to try something, and maybe you like it, maybe you won't. Um, it's just very gratifying to, to hear and see that this is working, not just for our son, but can work for other children as well.
0: Well, that's one reason that I knew I wanted to include you and your mission and your book in this series, because the traditional publishing world doesn't always know how to get these books into the world, and you've taken you've taken years of experience, put it into a story that's relatable, and now you have people reading it. Do you ever think about what would have happened if you had gone the traditional route and you have been it been sitting on someone's desk for three years and perhaps never got published? Did you always, I mean, did you always know that you wanted to go the in, independent route?
2: No, not at all. I even up until. Two years ago when I ended up going with a hybrid publisher, I didn't really even know what hybrid publisher was. And everything I was hearing about, being in writers' groups, reading about, is that, well, you go the traditional route and maybe it'll take you a year, maybe more, to find an agent. And then you're at, you know, then you're at the mercy of the agent if they're going to be able to pitch the book And then, you know, and it goes on and on, even if you get the publisher, that they will like your book or want to change it in a lot of different ways. And my main concern after I found out through a classmate that I didn't even know, it was a writer's group, and she had had a book deal, and she announced it. And it was a local publishing uh, house, so I contacted her, and it was a hybrid publisher. So that's how I found out, and she was pleased with her experience. And since I figured, well, she's a writer and she's done her homework, then I'll I'll get in touch with them. But my main concern with a traditional publisher um, was how they might skew this. And I make a point in the book of starting it and ending it with a scene of him rock climbing, which he loved to do, and it takes a lot of, you know, muscle fiber and a lot of intellect, to be able to do that and know how to position your body and how to, to just learn um, really one thing at a time for him. And I was concerned that a publisher could look at this and want to present it as, oh, this story is about a kid that has a learning disability and, um, you know... Just I didn't want, I didn't want that image of him first. And I was really concerned that it might just present who he is
0: and what he can do. And let's be clear that because this term, hybrid publishers, fairly new to me too, but I am aware that there are more and more of this type of publisher with this business model coming into the publishing world. There's a big trade-off. You get authorial and editorial control. I think you even had a play in... I have a control in everything. You had, or you even had a role in selecting the cover. But you have to do most of the marketing. An author that publishes with a hybrid press is largely responsible for a great deal of of the exposure and marketing, if I have that right.
2: Uh, well, it depends on the hybrid. In my case, it's a in-house, full publishing house. So depending on... Um, what contract you sign? Um, they they offer this basic you can you know we' we'll, we'll help you. We'll line you up with um, the main distributors like Amazon. We'll get your Library of Congress information that you need. They
0: take care of ISBN and exactly. and all of the basic mm-hmm. precursor.
2: You also have control along the whole process. So I had a professional editor.
0: When it was within to... the publishing house, mm-hmm. yeah, okay,
2: and that worked out really well. I everything layout design. They showed things back and forth to me. I had to prove it what I wanted for the front cover. Um, when it went to the final PDF file of everything, I had last look at it to approve it, and went it into marketing. And I did go. There were two choices, and I did go into the marketing part of
0: um, services. So I, I had a marketing team. What is the response from local bookstores? And I ask that because I want to make sure that authors can understand the connection between um, hybrid press and acting as a local author in their community. What kind of response did you get from local bookstores?
2: This is the area that, and again, for me, it wasn't so much an issue. I would have loved for that book to be placed in all our stores in this area, Barnes & Noble, Um, all the independent shops that are here. And that hasn't happened yet. It didn't happen during my marketing period. Um, I know for some writers, that could be really making making your income making or breaking. Um, And I can't say that it's not going to happen. But for me, it didn't happen immediately. They were not in their contract. They don't guarantee that your book will be placed, that you have book events, anything along that line. What they did, though, is they did have a direct connection with Barnes and Noble, and it was up to the individual Barnes and Noble whether or when they wanted to place my book everywhere that I went as an event they did. So in that respect, with any
0: Barnes and Nobles that I dealt with, um, they have my book. And maybe another way to think about this is that bookstores are not the only way to build an audience in this world. And you have built an audience both locally and you've been asked to speak in other parts of the country. So I, again, that's why I wanted to devote some programming to independent bookstores because authors are getting creative in finding their audience. And sometimes it's a niche audience. Sometimes it's a a broad audience, but you're doing that. And I'll remind again that you had national coverage in the Washington Post with a glowing review And I think that is a good example of how a book can find the people who are meant to read it. Last question before we let you go. Can you tell us um, what you have coming up on Education Innovations, your program here at WERA? What kind of programming can we look forward to this year?
2: Well, the next program will actually be um, also from a a program over at the Arlington Career Center. And it is your Arlington Tech students. This is their first graduating class there. It's also the first class that is required in order to graduate to do what they call a capstone experience. That is a one-year project. And they, uh, as part of this, have to find an internship or they have to be involved as a consultant, (laughs) there's three different choices that they have, but the main point being it's work-based learning, and they have to go through all the steps you would take if you are actually working there. And within that year, they also have to produce a product, and they have to present
0: it. So we have some fresh, new world examples of how this is actually working. Yes, absolutely. This is a great book. I'll remind everyone this is Paula Laser. Her book... Beyond the Box, How Hands-On Learning Can Transform a Child and Reform Our Schools, A Mother Story. It is published by Mascot Books. Paula, thank you for coming to the program today. My pleasure. You've been listening to WERALP 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find us at realfictionradio.com. Join me next week for part three of our series on independent publishers and authors. My guest is best-selling author Aris Janigian, whose new novel, Waiting for Sophia, tells the story of a man accused of harassment in the hashtag MeToo movement. Thanks for joining us.